invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 5, and then we will um, read through the end of the chapter, verse 18. There is um, an ocean of gospel truth here that I'm simply am not going to be able this morning to unpack uh, all the different um, theological rivers that run together here. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, passage. I could easily preach a sermon series and happily would do that. But this morning we're going to focus uh, primarily on the central thought of Jesus Christ as our elder brother and see the wonder of that. So uh, Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. Let's give our attention to God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, as we come to your word, we come with expectancy. We come humbly, we come eagerly to receive a word from God. And we thank you that you promised to give us that as we receive these words in faith. Uh, Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him. We pray in his name. Amen. I want to ask you to raise your hands this morning since it's not really a reformed thing to do. But uh, I just want to be interested to know how many of you uh, are an older brother. I shouldn't say it's not a reformed thing to do. Calvin... uh, said it's the natural thing to do, so you can study that on your own. Um, how many of you are an, old, are an older brother? It'd be interesting to know, um, uh, for those of you who are an older brother, uh, how you think you did as an older brother. It'd be interesting for those who have an older brother um, to ask you, was your older brother primarily a blessing in your life or something else? Uh, because 
older brothers can be either, and I say that from experience because I was one. Unfortunately, I don't think any of my younger siblings ever felt inclined to get on their knees and thank the Lord for the fact that I was their older brother. Uh, I actually have a sibling here who you can double check on that, but uh, I think she will testify. <clears throat> I was selfish, I was self-centered, I was proud, um, I felt very comfortable making fun of the weaknesses I saw in my younger siblings. I was not an ideal older brother. The ideal older brother... Uh, is someone who is proud of you, the younger sibling, uh, someone who encourages you in your weakness and awkwardness, someone who's not ashamed of your weakness, but uh, publicly owns you as this is my brother, this is my sister, particularly when you are in a moment of, of trial. Some older kid is picking on you in the playground. Uh, your older brother arrives and fights for you. Uh, you adore him. You look up to him. You want to be like him. Uh, we all sense a need, I think, for an older brother like that. Even older brothers do. It's hard to be uh, in this world and to be afraid. I remember clearly uh, probably 1993, standing out on a desert road in the, the high desert of uh, Southern California. And uh, I'd just seen a little cross and a picture on the side of the road that caught my, caught my attention. I was driving by myself and I pulled over uh, there's a little photo there of a, of a man and a little card that his children had left for him. Uh, apparently, he had died there in a car accident. And, and it just grieved me to think of uh, all that those that little boy and girl lost uh, when they lost their, their dad. And, and then thinking of how uh, death does that to us in general. My, uh, um, my older brother, Bobby, was killed when I was just three months old. I, I was supposed to have an older brother. And... Um, and I thought about all that I missed in not having uh, Bobby in my life, all the, the benefits that I, that I thought would probably be really helpful to me, having someone to put me in my place, uh, having someone uh, to look up to, um, to learn from, and, and to just experience the, the, the loss of that in a, in, a, in a powerful way. I think we all sense uh, a need for or the, the, the benefit of someone to watch over us in that way. Maybe you remember getting picked on the playground and, and wishing there was some older brother to come and take your side and put the bully in his place. Now maybe you had an abusive parent and uh, an older brother to protect you and to help you and watch over you would have been a godsend. Well, the, the people that uh, the writer of uh, this letter that, that he's addressing are people who experience that sort of need. Uh, they are Jewish believers, most likely living in Rome, uh, and they're struggling. Life is extremely hard uh, because of their new faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they needed an older brother. It'd be hard for us to imagine uh, the reality of the loss that they experienced. Uh, when, when you became a Christian as a Jewish person, you lost a lot. Uh, you lost the things that, that were the most important to you or defined you. Because to be a Jew was not just to, to belong to a certain ethnicity. It wasn't like being Dutch. Uh, to be a Jew was to be part of an, uh, a whole community and a heritage, a history, a tradition. Uh, it was your security and your identity. It was your blood. And when you became a Christian, you lost that. You were excommunicated from the synagogue. You were uh, um, expunged from your family. Uh, you were cut off from your blood. And uh, so 
When life gets hard, where do you turn nowadays? Right, right, if we think about what if everything just falls apart, at least we have family. Well, that's exactly what they didn't have. They lost all of that when they came to Christ. And so they feel alienated and adrift, vulnerable. Where do you turn? To whom do you belong? What's your identity? What's your security? And the answer that the, the writer here is, is pointing to over and over and over again throughout the letter is you look to Jesus, you turn to Jesus, and you find uh, that the true blessings and benefits of the Christian life all flow from looking unto Jesus and seeing Jesus and all that he is for you. Last week, he began that by just pointing out that Jesus is the final word from God, that, that everything God has to say to us in the world today, he says through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and, and reminded us of the blessings, the unique privileges that belong to those who belong to Jesus, because Jesus is, um, is supreme over all the angels. So now he's going to make this point that this great king who reigns, who's the heir of all things... This Jesus is your brother. This Jesus has come to us. He's been made our flesh and blood brother so that everything that was lost for these early Christians in terms of family and and blood and tradition and heritage um, and future and security and significance is found a hundredfold in looking to Jesus. Jesus is the older brother who came to us to rescue us in a most amazing way, and now he reigns at the right hand of God to care for us and to bring us safely home. If you know your Bible, you know that the older brother in Scripture was the honored brother. He was the, the, uh, had the position of primacy, so the birthright belongs to him. The family legacy and, and inheritance belongs to him. And yet, uh, I've been reading a book by Jared Wilson called The Pastor's Justification. He, he points out um, if you know your Bible, you also know that the honored older brothers throughout Scripture are blithering idiots. The failure of the older brother to live up to his honorable position begins with Cain, proceeds through Esau, and then Joseph's older brothers, and to David's older brothers, and culminates in the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. One after the other, older brothers prove themselves to be failures. Even when they want to help or try to help, they fail. So when Joseph's brothers caught him and were going to kill him, Reuben, the oldest brother, says, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him off. Let's throw him in this pit and uh, secretly planning to come back later and rescue him. Well, well, he was off doing something else. When he comes back, Joseph is already sold and gone. So even with good intentions, Reuben fails. There's no help from among the children of men. Until you see Jesus arrives, and, and the, the wonder of Jesus is that he is everything an, uh, an elder brother is supposed to be. He is God's firstborn, the very Son of God. And the writer wants us to see his glory. If you look at verse 5, he wants us to realize that, that Jesus is our flesh and blood, made a little lower than the angels, like we, and, and, and yet now crowned as king crowned with glory and honor. It was not angels, two angels, that God subjected the world to come, 
of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, and, and of course, uh, he's quoting from Psalm 8. He knows he's quoting from Psalm 8. His readers know he's quoting from Psalm 8, but uh, he, just, he just wants them to hear these words fresh again. Here's what Scripture says. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you would care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and putting everything in subjection to his feet. Now, when David is writing that, he's marveling at the creation of man. That God made us a little lower than the angels and, and given us, has given uh, mankind dominion over the earth. We're God's vice regents, reigning, ruling over the earth. But the writer here sees a prophecy concerning Jesus, that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus has been given dominion and crowned with glory and honor. And specifically, Jesus reigns over the world to come. That's verse 5. God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. We're talking about the world to come. Well, what is that? <clears throat> It's not the sweet by and by, some sort of a, a fantasy future where um, right, people float around on clouds or, or have their best life now just later. The world to come is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God uh, as opposed to the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of this world. So uh, there is a, uh, the writer sees when Jesus comes into this world, <laughs> The kingdom of God has, has invaded uh, the kingdoms of this world, and the, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Jesus speaks of his ministry in, in this way. He speaks of his ministry as coming to destroy the works of the devil, that he had come to earth to battle the forces of evil in the heavenly realms, that there is a cosmic uh, sphere in which Jesus is operating, a cosmic battle that is taking place. And Jesus speaks about the, the disciples being sent out and casting out demons and, and healing people, and they come back and they're rejoicing. And Jesus says, I saw the devil fall like lightning from sky. Um, Jesus has bound the strong man and plundered his home. That's, what, that's how Jesus describes his ministry. And so the work of redemption that, that, that took place, uh, it takes place in, this, in the cosmic sphere of spiritual reality as Jesus breaks the stranglehold that death and the devil and hell hold over this world. And he did that by atoning for, for sin, thus fulfilling the law, which was the power of death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 56. So that's why when Jesus came, he didn't come to get rid of the Romans, he came to overthrow the spiritual forces behind the wickedness of Rome and all the wicked uh, empires of this world. And, and so he has now been enthroned as governor, king, ruler of the world to come, which, is the, which means, you see, all the kingdoms of, of this earth are going to pass away, but the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is an unshakable kingdom. It's, it will last and endure and reign forever. But, the writer says... At present, that's not what we see. One of the, the great, it sounds like an understatement. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Isn't that the truth? You open up your newspaper or uh, flip open your iPad, whatever. Turn on the TV. What do you see? 
You do not see the kingdoms of this world yielding glad submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. You see the kingdoms of this world doing what kingdoms have always done. You see men and women in this world doing what men and women have always done. Everyone's seeking their own way. Everyone's seeking to get what they can get. To serve themselves. And so you see the rulers, Assad and Putin and Trump and Kim Il-jung and, and all the rest of them. And you see, you see chaos and evil and folly and envy and greed and lust and persecution and death. You see a world that's in the grip of sin. You see those who do belong to Jesus Christ being persecuted even to death. That's what you see. But it's not all you see. If that's all you see, you see you're living as, without the eyes of faith. If that's all you see, then you don't see what is ultimately important. The writer says, but we see him. We see Jesus. That's the whole point of the letter. Because you see, Jesus is the evidence of ultimate truth. He is ultimate reality and the evidence of a new world order that has broken in and one day is going to be all in all. This world is not all that there is. And, and so what we see with the physical eye and what we read in the newspapers is not the most important news. This is the most important news, the most the ultimately defining truth is that Jesus Christ has invaded this world and has taken over. He has conquered spiritual death and, and the devil and hell. And so uh, the writer says, I'm talking about the new world order. I'm talking about the world to come. And I want you to understand that God the Father has accomplished something magnificent for you in Jesus, your elder brother. Look at verse 10. It was fitting that he, that is the Father, for whom and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here you see the Father's plan for all things, which is to bring many sons to glory. That God, before the foundation of this world, determined that he would have for himself a people. That's the language of Scripture. That, there are, that God elected, chose for himself a people. Sinners, every one of them, but God chose them uh, and loved them and determined to make these, his children, sons, in glory. That, that they're going to experience infinite Glory, infinite bliss, infinite blessing in his presence. That's what he determined. Well, how is he going to do that? Romans 8, 29. Those whom he, which is the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus says to his Son, the second person of the Trinity, I'm going to send you. They agree, right, in the council of eternity. Jesus willingly, gladly receives this calling as the elder brother to go and rescue the children of God by becoming flesh and blood. Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, the children of God, all have one source, the Father. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them Christians brothers. I just want that, that phrase to settle in. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. 
One of the defining marks of fallen older brothers is that they ridicule and shame the weakness of their younger siblings. It's, it's, it's nearly a job requirement that if you're an older brother, that's what you do. You laugh at your kid sister and your kid brother. Um, you make fun of them. Ridicule and shame is part of fallen older brotherhood. It, even the best brothers, I would suspect. And it's not that there aren't things to ridicule. That's what, you know, people don't understand how hard it is to be an older brother. <clears throat> I mean, let's face it, growing up is, is awkward and embarrassing project, and older brothers seem to have unique insight uh, into, uh, or just catch you exactly at the wrong moment, and delight in pointing out uh, the awkwardness and the embarrassment and the weakness. And laughing, and not always with, with, with malice, but far too often with true mirth and joy. Um, the weakness, the embarrassment. Jesus never does that. Ever. He never gets a good laugh over your weakness, your awkwardness, your foolishness. He is not ashamed to call you brother. Now just let your mind wrap around that. Jesus, the very Son of God, glorious, eternal King of kings, is not ashamed. And that's a negative way of saying he is happy and pleased and glad to call you brother. I, how does he do that? Why? How could he not be ashamed to call me brother? I'm ashamed to claim myself at times. I hope you are too. And we don't see a fraction of the sin and pride and perversion with the clarity that Jesus sees it. Remember, he is robed in the beauty of holiness, wrapped in glorious light, and he sees the truth of your sin. He sees all the ramifications of it. He sees all the rebellion in it, all the pride in it, all the perversion in it, in its full truth, all as fundamentally a sin against his God and Father. And yet he, this beautiful, glorious, glorified Jesus is not ashamed to stand in the congregation of heaven and point to you and say, that's my brother, my sister. He gladly says this. Why? Well, because by the great, amazing love and grace of God and the work of redemption, you are his brother. He is your brother. You share the same father, verse 11. There's one source. You share the same father in heaven. You share the same family trait, holiness. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. To be a Christian is to be someone who is being sanctified by the power of God through Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. You have the same family trait. You share the same flesh and blood. Verse 14. You share the same faith. 
Surely it is not angels he helps. The Greek here means literally to take hold of. But he takes hold of Abraham's children. Who are Abraham's children? Well, Paul says in Galatians that there's those who believe in Christ, who have the faith of Abraham, who trust that God is able to raise uh, the dead to life and, and who, who by faith are declared righteous, not by works, but by faith. These are my brothers, Jesus says. Remember when his family came and he's teaching and, and somebody says, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside because they thought he was nuts. And, and uh, so Jesus says, well, who, who are my mother and my brothers? These are my mother and brothers. Those who are my disciples, those who follow me and believe in me and do my Father's will. Jesus, you see, claims you as a brother. When he died, he died for you in your place as your brother. When he rose victorious, he rose as your brother. Jesus says in Matthew 28 to the women who came and uh, he said to them, Don't be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The writer wants us to see this intimacy that we have with Christ, this blood tie we have with Christ, and then to rejoice in what he's accomplished for us. He is the founder of our salvation. This is a term that people have wrestled to try to um, describe. The English language doesn't really have a good word for this Greek term. Some have said he's our, the pioneer of our salvation, the captain of salvation, the author of salvation, the champion of salvation. They all kind of get around this, this central idea that there, there's, a, there's a one, a man, an individual who goes on behalf in the place of others and accomplishes their victory by destroying the enemy and, and, and he achieves their deliverance by opening a way of escape. The, the idea is that people are trapped and they can't get out and they're being overwhelmed and they don't have any hope for rescue until this one comes and fights the battle and opens the way and they then are set free. The best biblical example I think is David and Goliath. You know the story well. The, uh, when David and Goliath uh, face off, they're facing off as, as representative champions. Goliath is the great uh, representative of Philistia and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. David has a clear sense that he is there to represent God and to uh, take a stand for the people of God. That's why he refuses Saul's armor. You don't fight the weapons, uh, the spiritual weapons with the the weapons of the world. You you rely on the power of God. So uh, that's the contest. It's not just something that's taking place on the battlefield. This is a a contest in the heavenly realms as well as on the battlefield. And, And when David's stone crushes Goliath's head, that victory reverberates in the heavenly realms, the, the, the promise of Genesis 3.15, he will crush the serpent's head. That is ringing right in the ears of the devil. As the, as the great Goliath thunders to the ground, and in that victory, Israel is suddenly set free. They had been enslaved in fear. Remember when, when David comes to them, they're all sitting in their tents trying to plug their ears because this, this war monster named Goliath is threatening them. And they don't have any answer for him. No one in the entire army has the courage or the ability to stand against Goliath. 
But then comes David, armed with nothing but a stone and the favor of God, and in a moment their fear is conquered as Goliath thunders to the ground, and in a moment, you see, what had been certain defeat and death is transformed into a magnificent victory. And David's accomplishment, a way of escape miraculously opens up, and Israel, led by their mighty captain, ran forward to fight a battle that had already been won. Does that sound familiar? Because that's precisely what Christ has done for you, what he's done for us. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This was the experience of the disciples. They had been captured by fear. Fear of what? Fear of death. Fear of suffering. And in a moment, you see, they're transformed to this joyful courage and sacrificial confidence as they, as they move forward into the world. F.F. Bruce comments on how utterly transforming the death and resurrection of Jesus was for them. This is what Bruce says. If ever death had appeared triumphant, it was when Jesus of Nazareth disowned by his nation, abandoned by his disciples, executed by the might of imperial Rome, breathed his last on a cross. If ever a cause was lost, it was his. If ever the powers of evil were victorious, it was then. And yet, within a few weeks, his followers were triumphantly proclaiming at the risk and cost of their own lives that this Jesus, by dying, had conquered death. This was the assurance which nerved martyrs to face death boldly in his name. Is that what it's done for you? Is that what it's done for you? See, I think most of us understand the mechanics of salvation. We can explain the gospel. Jesus came, Jesus died, bore our sins, uh, imputed his righteousness so that we can be forgiven, so that we're justified, we can be saved and go to heaven. We have a sense of the mechanics. I think we struggle with the ramifications. We fail to experience so often the realities that we profess. We can still live, you see, enslaved to the fear of death, both uh, truly literally thinking about dying and being afraid to die and all the ways that that fear runs through our life. See, fear of, fear of giving away things. Fear, there, was a, there was a book written um, just a while back uh, called Slavery to Death by a man named, I believe, Richard Beck. And uh, he just talks about psychologically, what, what, what do you see in the world? You see people who are afraid and specifically afraid of doing things that put themselves or their resources at risk. So people who are bringing stuff to themselves and hoarding things and, and worried about giving away their time and giving away their resources, their money, their possessions. What if I lose it? Then what? What if the early church had lived like that? You see, how do you understand the book of Acts that way? They, where people sell their, their possessions and give to the poor. How do they do that? How do you, how do you get set free like that? Well, you, you believe that Jesus Christ has conquered death and, and all loss. 
So there is no loss for the children of God as we live following Jesus Christ. There's no risk in that sense. Even if you lose your life, there's just gain, you see. The, the, God, the fear that so often grips us is dispelled at the cross. There's no reason to fear loss when we have an empty tomb. Nothing given to Christ is ever, ever lost. Our elder brother, friends, has provided for us. So we're not alone. We have an older brother, the very son of God, who came to us as flesh and blood, who's not ashamed of us ever in spite of all of our sin, who died to rescue us forever from the death that we deserved, and who now reigns as king and lord to care for us and to perfect us and protect us and bring us safely home. So what difference should that actually make in your life? What difference should that actually make? What sin should that move you to confess? What fear should that move you to set aside? What ministry should that move you to embrace? What forgiveness should that move you to grant? How could his love for you change the way you love others? How could it change your prayers? How could it affect your hopes? Friends, apply it. There is incredible transformation in the truth of our elder brother, who came to taste death for us so that we never need fear it or any loss ever again. It's astounding. Let's believe it. Amen. Father, the gospel is so much more than we'd imagined and the victory of Christ so much more profound and deep and relevant, practical, and we need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us apply that wonderful gospel truth to our own hearts and lives. Father, I, I just I pray that you'd give us spiritual insight and wisdom so that this isn't just a sermon we hear, but the gospel stands and, and the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished, calls us to transformed lives where we can cast out fear because there's no reason for it. And we can gladly give ourselves and our time and our money and possessions for Christ's sake with no threat of loss. For all things are ours in him. And our elder brothers at the right hand of God interceding and reigning. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus. We see all the other things. We see the sin. We see the weakness. We see the failure. We see the, the corruption around us and in us. But Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus. That he'd become the predominant figure on the horizon of our life. And that seeing Jesus, we'd see everything else in a new light. And be truly transformed. Step by step, day by day, by your power but truly, and for the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to